Hello, this is Josiah from the future. I just wanted to quickly jump in here real quick and say that there were some audio issues on this episode. Um, It's always on my end. I did my best to edit around it and uh, sometimes re-record some questions just so that it is not unlistenable. But I thought I would give this disclaimer that there's a few times that I kind of sound like a a fizzy robot. So, uh, But aside from that, I think think it's a great, fun episode and it is definitely still worth listening to. So uh, enjoy. You're listening to a podcast called Fruitless, hosted by me, Josiah Sutton. This is episode five, Punk, Authenticity, and the Exvangelicals, where I talk to Joel Harrison of the Us Without Them podcast. Well, um, maybe we could just dive in here a little bit and just, sure. um, if you want to just kind of introduce yourself a little bit. Um. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Joel Harrison. Uh, I'm an associate professor of religion at Northern Virginia Community College. Um, been there for just a few years. Uh, before that, I was getting my PhD at Northwestern University in religious studies. Um, and you know, when I was there, I kind of was working on like, you know, I was studying old dead German guys, um, (laughs) and philosophy (laughs) of religion and that kind of thing. And, um, but you know, kind of my interests broadly put were on the relationship between theology and culture. So like, okay. Yeah. How does theology actually respond to culture while still sort of maintaining this idea that, it's actually ahistorical and unchanging and unaffected by culture when, you know, when you actually look at the history of the church, it's like, well, no, I mean, ideas have changed authoritative, what has been authoritative and normative has changed over time. How does that work? So that's what my dissertation was about. Um, And so now I'm kind of like, expanding that idea, like this relationship between theology and culture into other places. Yeah, great. Yeah. And then, of course, you are uh, one of three hosts on the Us Without Them podcast. You want to say a little yes. bit about that? Yeah, yes. sure. Yeah. So that, I mean, it's really wild how that kind of came about. So uh, back in August of last year, um, I so I, I, I've been working on this book on um, underground Christian music. And as a result of that, I joined all of these Facebook groups uh, for fandoms of various Christian, mu- you know, so like the labeled podcast group, old school to yeah, the nail. Yeah. Um, and I'd never, I mean, I've been on Facebook basically since it started and I'd never really been part of any of these like fan communities for anything. And so right. I saw that there was one for me without you. It's like, I love well, me I like music, you. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, I enjoy interacting <laughs> on these other groups, um, like not just as a researcher, but like as a fan. Uh, right. So I think I'm going to join this group. And then back in August, um, Nick, actually, one of the other co-hosts, posted mm-hmm. something in that group 
asking if there was a podcast about me without you. Um, and then Which a is bun- a bizarre oversight that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> right, I know. Well, that's <laughs> what, I mean, a, a lot of people were like, no, but someone should start one. Um, and then I kind of, you know, both Steven and I kind of swooped in there and we're like raising our hands like, hey, um, I would start a podcast. That would be really cool. And so he, you we, guys didn't even know each other before. No, no, that we, wow, we did not know amazing. each other. I didn't, at all. I didn't realize that. Yeah, we didn't know each other at all. Uh, and so we kind of reached out to each other via Facebook Messenger and then had a Zoom meeting and and realized like instantly in that first meeting, like, okay, this could actually work. Like we yeah. kind of automatically had a very good rapport. I, I think there's something to be said about like a kind of personality type that listens to a band like me without you. I mean, the three yeah, of us absolutely. are like, I mean, we we have our own individual music tastes too like i'm very much into like midwest emo and and hardcore and that kind of thing nick's into that a little bit but he's also very much Mm. into like big thief and arcade fire and steven has his classical music thing (laughs) you know um (laughs) but we also have like a lot of shared musical interests and like some kind of shared personality traits where we're like man if we all like lived in the same area we would be very very good friends i mean we are good friends now of course um yeah so yeah it was just kind of a crazy thing and then we just you know even when we started recording the season we weren't sure if it what was going to happen um we kind of just had a loose plan and then it was like uh you know every time we went to record in the back of my head i was sort of like is this going to be the episode where it like falls apart and we don't, we realize (laughs) we have nothing more to say and it just never happened. Uh, You know, it's been um, really, really fun to uh, just kind of riff with those guys about this awesome band. And um, yeah, it's been great. Yeah. It's, it's, I've been really enjoying the show. Um, Thank you. So yeah, for those listening who who don't listen, it's it's been going track by track through the discography of me without you, um, and then you know you you study religion, um, and then it was was it Nick who studies uh, St- uh, uh, music? Steven Steven studies music, music. Theory guy. Yeah, yeah, and then Nick's kind of the layman uh, Tolkien fan, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. General interest in like music culture, and he's he's right. uh, I love Nick because he's very very good at asking like the questions that he asks of each of us when we're t- talking about something, I'm like, wow, that's a good question. I didn't think about hadn't that. I hadn't thought of that. You know? yeah. 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 Absolutely. No, yeah. So, um, yeah, if you're listening to this and you don't listen to me without you, change that. And if you listen to this and you listen to me without you, you should <laughs> yeah, we listen kind, to uh, We kind of had this them. like, we kind of had this like big, uh, you know, grand plan that, um, that the podcast could be this like entry point for people into the band who like it it's didn't a great get one. it yeah. when when me without you was still really active um and uh you know that we could maybe kind of spark some interest and explain yeah. why this band is so great <laughs> yeah absolutely well like it, it's been interesting for me because i you know the kind of an age gap thing here i got into them around pale horse so like pretty okay. late right okay yeah um, but then of course obsessed and went back on the discography but a to b life never quite clicked with me but as i've been sure. listening to this i'm like 
God, that's a good album. I need to, yeah. <laughs> need to listen to it. <laughs> I know it's funny. There's there's an episode coming up. I think it's the episode on Be Still Child, where that was a track that um, you know that I was just kind of like, this is just a track on the album that right. I'll listen to because it follows Gentlemen, which is one of their, I think, one of their best songs. Yeah, um, absolutely. But it wasn't really a track that necessarily clicked with me. It's a little like dissonant and whatever, but like. As we were recording that episode, I started to feel like, wow, this, I have never thought about this song in this way. I mean, so it yeah, happens for absolutely. us too. Like in the midst of recording the episodes, one of us will be like, whoa, I, my mind is blown right now. I have never <laughs> thought about this, this way, you know, and that, and, and we're so glad that other people are having that experience as they're listening to the podcast um yeah because you know because we were having that experience when we were recording the episodes like six months ago um and yeah. and yeah so that's been really fun yeah no i uh the most recent few episodes i mean you, you guys have been playing with this theme of um a to b life being connected to kierkegaard's mm -hmm. uh, either or right. um and <laughs> watching steven pull the um literally it in the music the right <laughs> Character of I A know. and B being represented yeah. literally in the notes of A it's, and B. Brilliant. It was amazing. Yeah. I never is, would have crazy. caught that. It is. Yeah. It is <laughs> wild. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think at a certain point he was like, is this too much? Like, is this going too far? It's like, no, I don't. I'm not sure we can go too far with an interpretation of this stuff. Like, it's just that, again, no. it's sort of like the nature of me without you fans. It's like. We're just all sort deep, of drawn yeah. to this kind of like interpretive practice. Um, yeah. 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 No, they were, they were a band that clicked with me. Like when I was going through kind of, I, I guess what um, is, uh, I don't love this term, but it's coined like a deconstruction phrase, sure. phrase yeah, right? yeah. with people's <laughs> right. faith or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's a great band to do with that. Cause totally, I don't know. They, they explore spiritual stuff and a really, uh, not not like any other religious band. I feels like very um, I don't know, uh, thoughtful in you know deeply tied in with literature or whatever. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember listening. Uh, you know, when I because um, I, I started listening to them with A to B Life, and um, I was an English major in college. And thought yeah. of myself as like very philosophical and you know kind of, <laughs> right, maybe right. kind of pretentious or whatever and and yeah the like the verse on bullet to binary that Aaron does in French and the references to John yeah, Donne yeah. and Kurt Vonnegut I was like I this is amazing like this is blowing my mind right it. now I just I loved it so much <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Well, um, so, you know, getting that little talk about Me Without You in, we can maybe branch out broader to, um, I guess, evangelical, you know, tooth and nail kind of bands in general, sure. the kind of stuff that was going on there. So you're you're working on a book about that right now. Do you want to yeah. say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been, I've been working on it for like two years now. Um, 
there was mm. uh, <laughs> a big gap there where I kind of put it down for a while and now I'm picking it back up. But um, I mean, the basic idea of the book is to kind of ask the question, like, what is the impact of Christian, the Christian punk scene? Like what, what is its nature in a sense? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, to kind of try to get at, I guess, the shape of it, the contours. Like, I, for mm -hmm. example, I think that there's a big distinction to be made between the Tooth & Nail bands and, like, the CCM stuff. Like, I think... Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of... There are a lot of fans. Like, I've encountered this, like, in the labeled group and and um, other, you know, Tooth & Nail fan, <laughs> fan groups or whatever. But, you know where people will kind of combine their love for Skillet and DC Talk with, you know, I don't know, uh, MXPX uh, or Zao or something like that. Emory, and, yeah, sure. And I, I'm kind of like, I mean, it's, you like what you like, right? I'm not criticizing what, what people like. I mean, sure, it's fine, yeah. obviously, but, um, but like there's, I think, a qualitative difference in terms of actual, like, ideology, um, between the tooth and nail stuff and uh, and the CCM stuff. And so part of the goal of the book is to try to dig into that. Like, what is that qualitative difference? Um, and one of the ways that I'm approaching that is through the concept of authenticity. So okay. authenticity yeah. in like uh, three different senses. So there's musical authenticity. There's this question always about a Christian version of anything, right, as to whether or not it's authentic. Because or just like a ripoff or a parody. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. to be fair, I mean, that's a very fair question because evangelical culture yeah. <laughs> is notorious for taking uh, some uh, aspect of mainstream culture and like making their own version of that. I mean, you have that with movies, you have that, I mean, CCM, you know, a band like Skillet, like uh, Audio Adrenaline, like, you know, DC Talk even, those were the sanitized, you know, Christian versions of, you know, but Tooth and Nail was different in that regard. I mean, I've done uh, about 30 or so interviews, maybe 30 to 40 interviews with fans and, and um, people who were in bands or involved in the label, particularly in the early days. And, you know, a, a lot of the older guys were just like, man, we just wanted to be in a punk band. We weren't really right, thinking right. about, like Billy Power, for instance. Um, so, sorry. Yeah, so so Billy Billy Power, who uh, was in the band Blenderhead and um, was also the head of A&R at Tooth & Nail for like 10 years or so. Uh, and, you know, he, yeah, he was definitely one of the people who's like, I wasn't really interested in preaching to anybody. I was just, I, I was writing songs about what I knew and I wanted to be, you know, like, uh, you know, dead Kennedys or something like I, you know, he didn't, he didn't want to be, he wasn't trying to be like a Christian punk band. It just happened to, and I mean, you hear this kind of thing a lot, like, oh, is it a Christian band or is it Christians in a band, you know? Um, and I, yeah, I think with a lot of the tooth and nail acts, uh, there was this, I mean, it was a kind of a, a challenging line to walk. I mean, there were a few bands that were 
sort of explicitly like a kind of ministry, like the Supertones, for instance. Like they were definitely, I interviewed Matt Morginsky for the book, um, you know, and I mean, I was kind of surprised, you know, he said that his, he was always kind of torn a little bit on that, that there were other guys in the band that were very gung-ho about like, no, this is a ministry, we're evangelizing, and that other guys in the band were kind of like, uh... I mean, if it means I get to play shows every night and go on tour across the country, then fine. Um, but then you have other, like, I interviewed, um, oh gosh, I'm not going to remember his last name, Nate something from the band Everdown, which was one of the early kind of hardcore bands on Tooth and Nail from like mm -hmm. the early 90s. Um, yeah. And, you know, those guys were like 19. You know, and he, I, I mean, this really stood out to me that he was like, we play these churches and they'd ask me to preach and, you know, or, or us to preach. And we're like, we don't know what we believe. Like we're 19. We, we're in no position right, to be telling right. 16 and 17 year olds like what to believe. Like what, what you don't, you really don't want that. <laughs> so anyway, so there's, this, so there's this sense of authenticity. I mean, that kind of goes to the next piece of authenticity, which is um, the idea of like authentic Christian expression. Um, I think that on some level, the tooth and nails, people are drawn to tooth and nail because um, there's this sense that, the bands are not afraid to sort of like be authentic, be real about their faith. I mean, I think that that, you know, in some ways that speaks to, or the, or the whole deconstruction thing and like, you know, finding some kind of point of connection with a band like with me, like me without you, for instance, right. It's like that kind of thing where people are like, Oh, Hey, this band is actually uh, criticizing this aspect of Christianity. They're talking about their mental health. They're, um, you know, they're questioning authority in some way. It's not all just, you know, everything's great. I'm going to put on a happy face. And so there was, I think, a sense of like, okay, this is uh, a kind of authentic expression of faith. Um, and then there's a third aspect that I'm kind of still trying to work out. It's it's complicated, I think, because the fandom of Tooth & Nail's such a mixed bag, but there's a sense of political authenticity that I'm also kind of playing with, um, where there's this, because, <laughs> you know, Brandon Ebel sort of infamously said that Tooth & Nail was too Christian for the punks, too punk for the Christians, right? There's this kind of like middle road that they occupied. Um, and I think that that in a lot of ways describes the politics of this kind that that this sort of like uh underground christian music in some senses created a politics that was okay with sort of saying like i'm not too radical this way or this way and that is the sign that i am being authentic as as well like you know it's not just oh i'm expressing myself in the way that i want to express myself like you know kind of the ethos of punk rock is that like you do you there are no rules right it's anarchy you express right, yourself right. the way that you want to um 
so there's that piece of it, but then there's also this piece of like the sim, the sign that I am being an authentic Christian is that I'm not going to allow myself to be drawn into these like partisan debates about, you know, politics or whatever. And in some ways, I think that that created a kind of quietism, you know, um, and I, I mean, I would say that that's not entirely true of all, uh, you know, tooth and nail fans. You know, I've, I interviewed plenty of people who became leftists who, you know, um, are socialists now and, and they attribute that um, more radical politics to tooth and nail music sort of um, uh, enabling them to uh, to say, hey, I can be a Christian and have this different uh way of this different political view this you know my hair can be red my you know um so yeah so so that's that's kind of where things are now is that i'm like exploring this concept of authenticity um and and the the kind of nefarious i guess piece about the the political aspect is that that kind of works its way into the mars hill discourse right because mark driscoll yeah, yeah. was I'm glad you brought this up part yeah. You know, he was trying to tap into that tooth and nail scene. They had a music venue. They were mm -hmm. trying to brand themselves in the mid to late 90s as uh, a kind of punk rock rebel bad boy of yeah. Calvinism church. Well, while yeah, their that's, theology that's even attracted like Emery and yeah, bands like them yes, to be like exactly. really tight with them. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, you know, Dustin Kensrew was a worship leader there in like 2009. Um yeah, there. I mean, there are a number of uh, of tooth and nail and tooth and nail adjacent people who were involved with Mars Hill, um, and and yeah, and so I think you know, in a lot of ways, Driscoll tried to use that that similar idea of authenticity. Like, I'm going to be authentic and drink beer and cuss from the pulpit, and like that's an authentic expression, just like you know, you all really like these punk bands who express their Christianity in that way. Like, I'm also breaking the rules of traditional Christianity because I cuss and I, you know, drink beer and I want to talk about sex and stuff. But, like, behind all that, obviously, was this, like, extremely conservative Calvinism. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and the thing, the, the crazy thing is, is that even that was not new. I mean, Calvary Chapel in the 70s, was also very much in that vein. Like, you know, um, my, I, I grew up in Southern California. My parents grew up in Southern California. And like, I was talking to my mom about this. She, you know, her uh, older sister and like uh, an aunt or, or, or cousin or some, someone, you know, they, they would go down to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa um, because like you could go to church barefoot, you know. You could go yeah, to church yeah, wearing shorts absolutely. and like a Hawaiian shirt and barefoot because it was this like beach surf culture. But like it was so conservative theologically. I mean, it was essentially a very conservative fundamentalist Pentecostal church with this like aesthetic. And there but there was something that really drew young people into that that thing. So. Part of what the book is trying to do is also like connect tooth and nail, you know, to those kinds of movements, to movements like the Jesus people as well. I mean, the Jesus people right. oh, yeah, are the ones course. who started Cornerstone, right? 
Um, yeah. They, you know, they were the original founders of, of Cornerstone. So there is a connection through that to Tooth and Nail as well. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of where things are uh, with the book right now. Yeah, absolutely. From from the reading I, I've done on, like, the history of evangelicalism, which is, you know, not a lot, um, th- there does seem to be a, a trend of, like, every generation within evangelicalism identifying itself as kind of like the revival that's breaking off the shackles of the previous generation while yeah. still reproducing right. <laughs> the exact same like right. institutional right. structures. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, you know, I mean, there's gosh, there's so many like uh, analytical like lenses that I'm kind of toying with here. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of like, um, I think that there was a moment in especially in the early years of tooth and nail when they were genuinely doing something different um where they were where there there was a a moment where i think they really had an opportunity to spark like a serious social movement toward something else and i mean this isn't you know, in retrospect, it's easy to say, oh, you had this opportunity and you blew it like, they, you know, um, <laughs> you can't really lay that at their feet, I, I guess. Um, and, and to a certain extent, I mean, they still are definitely outside, I think, of, uh, you know, the, the kind of mainstream CCM universe. Um, but, yeah, I think that there was a moment there where they were pioneering something truly different. And then, you know, sort of once CCM caught up to that, I would say in like the early 2000s, um, you know, you had, uh, God, I'm not going to remember some of these bands. I mean, Reliant K to a certain extent, I mean, they were, you know, they were never on tooth and nail. They were, um, I mean, they went to a major label very quickly, but right, uh, I believe right. they, they started were... out in kind of the CCM world. And there's a couple other uh bands that um that were also sort of similarly like pop punk bands but definitely ccm uh and uh you know created out of that machine and sort of once that happened that i think in many ways took away a lot of the potency of what tooth and nail was yeah doing because people started to really you know again like if you're not really paying attention and you just listen to Christian music, then yeah, you're not going to make any distinction between a CCM label artist and tooth and nail, you know, there's not going to be any difference there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And that distinction's pretty, um, it's hard to make like, um, like what I, what I, uh, told my girlfriend today, what I was doing today's episode about, right. It was like Christian music and she's like, Oh God, that sounds awful. And I have to be like, well, (laughs) the stuff you, you're imagining is, is I'm talking about the, you know, there's like a distinction that's like hard to explain where it's like, ah, you know, the two nail stuff was very different. Um, er earlier on you mentioned, um, yeah, the the Mike left wing impulses in a lot of those spaces started moving toward quietism in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I don't know if you are you familiar with uh, Dean Detloff and Matt Bernico of the oh, Magnificast? Yes. Yep, yep, oh yep. yes, yeah, yeah, right. I know those guys they, well. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Um, they they've talked about that a few times. That like it, it seems like the route to leftism that a lot of young evangelicals go through would usually be the Jacques like the Jacques Ellul 
and that kind of anarchist route first, because that was most conducive to that more like quietist, you know, we'll just kind of reject the establishment as it is and step away. Right. And it, it, they have to kind of work their way back into like, well, no, I should be involved in the, you know, in this, this political movement, but you know, it was, it's easier to go to the anarchism or Howard Wass or that kind of stuff. Totally. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. I mean, Howard Wass is actually an excellent example of the kind of like, uh, I still quite like, but sure, no, no, I, I think that, no, that's fair. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, I think it's in resident aliens. He, uh, you know, was talking about politics and, and essentially just saying like, um, yeah, the, the Christian is like outside of these, right. We have a, like a totally different, like a radical politics. politics. Yeah. Yes. But it's like, but do we, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, you know, especially when, I mean, Christianity is so embedded in the American conception of the secular and, you know, all these, all these things, you know, it's like, I mean, to what extent can you actually say Christianity has a radically different politics from quote unquote, the world, um, when Christianity essentially, uh, sets like the, the foundation, the baseline for what politics even is in the West. Right. Um, so yeah, but I mean, that's a really good example, I think, of the kind of thing, um, you know, and I, I went to seminary and, and during my PhD years, you know, met a lot of uh, a lot of Hauerwasian kind of Theobro guys who uh, who were who felt like, yeah, that what they were doing was like pretty radical um, because it was different than, you know, it was it was aimed at. Uh, you know, to their credit, I think it was aimed at anti-racism and, you know, um, sure. positions yeah, that, that were progressive, but like without the organizational piece, it's like the, mm -hmm. there's like some kind of allergy to organizing or like if there's going to be organization, it's just going to be in the church. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, it does it don't work that way. <laughs> it just, you know, you, you know, and I know Matt and Dean they know way more about organizing than I do. Um, oh, sure. And I know that that's, that's like a big, a big yeah, part I, of their... I've showed up to a few rallies. That's about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> same. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there, there remains this kind of, like, without that, uh, you know, without coming back, like, as you said, like, to, and, and sort mm -hmm. of remaining in this sort of Hauerwasian, uh, it, it, it becomes very individualistic. Like where it's like, yeah, it's almost, it's, it's it, about making sure you have the right view. Right. It's, it's almost, it's and almost not like building um, anything. Right. It's almost mystical in a way. Like it's like, mm -hmm. it's about my personal sort of experience and my personal politics. Um, and, uh, and that is in many ways still very, very uh, conservative mm. Protestant evangelical. Like it's me before God, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Well, and that's kind of a thing you can find even in more left circles among a lot of the the kind of the people who are really into like the deconstruction kind of approach. Yeah. It turns into this like very individual crisis mm -hmm. of faith, get rid of the bad ideologies you hold and not like yep. building any community yep. that actually challenges anything. Yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I've been I had been seriously thinking about adding something into the book about this deconstruction thing. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
I mean, it's so interesting. I don't know. I mean, someone's got to write a book on, like, the origins of this. I mean, to my mind. Yeah. So, like, I, you know, I, my first master's degree was in English. And uh, mm. before I started that, I read uh, uh, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism by James K. Yeah. Smith in, like, yeah. 2006. And that was where I first encountered the idea of deconstruction. But it was, you know, the Derridian yeah, the philosophical idea of, of it. Um, and then I read Derrida in grad school and like when I went to seminary, I went to Fuller Seminary, um, which is, you know, the, a big evangelical seminary. But I found other people who were also into Derrida and into, um, you know, this French 20th century, you know, continental philosophy. Mm. And, you know, I was really excited by that. I think around the same time I found found out about Peter Rollins and, you know, yeah, was, yeah. so there was this kind of like, and also around the same time started listening to homebrewed Christianity. Um, yeah, and there's like yeah. this, there's a big confluence of, um, you know, so even if people who like are engaged in the deconstruction sort of uh, uh, discourse today have never heard mm -hmm. of any of those things, I do think yeah. that a lot of it does <laughs> stem from a big role. the popularity well, <laughs> 10, 12 years ago of those figures yeah. kind of talking about deconstruction and in a philosophical sense, you know, and that kind of spawned other projects like the deconstructionist podcast and that started like seven years ago or something, um, you know, so it's, yeah, it's a really interesting thing, but I think you're totally right that it is very, very individualized and personal. It's about, and there's, there has to be space for that. I think, you know, for people to work out their own trauma and, and that kind of thing, but it's not a politic. I mean, it's not, um, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, self-care for sure, but deconstruction can't be like a politics. I don't think, um, at least not the way that it's articulated. I mean, I think that there are ways it can be if you go back to Derrida, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, as, as it's kind of exists in Twitter right now among Ex-evangelicals and stuff. I don't. Yeah, I. I it's too individualistic. the emergent church was doing about 10 years ago and like what the deconstructionists some people have made comparisons to it and like there's similarities i see but obviously it, it seems like there's something else going on between the two yeah i mean i so that's man that's a really good question i yeah no i think that there is a difference i, I think that mm -hmm. i mean the emergent church movement had some resonances with kind of postmodernism generally but yeah. there was also sort of in it uh i think a bit of a conservative streak to a certain extent yeah absolutely um yeah and yeah so in some ways i i mean well and the fact again the fact that mark driscoll was originally <laughs> part of the emergent church of movement that tells you something right yeah. um that you know that that it's you know that i it's because that idea of like well the thing that makes me authentic is that like i'm not going to be afraid to say these certain taboo things i'm not going to be afraid mm -hmm. to like upset like the the evangelical culture 
um, and their like kind of culture war like mentality about drinking and and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not going to be afraid of that, but like, and I'm not saying that people like. Um, you know, Doug Paget or uh, Brian McLaren or something like that, that they have like very conservative theology. I, I don't think that they do. I think that that's certainly what, that's the reason why Mark Driscoll, like at one point pretty early on was no longer part of the emerging church movement, right? right. And kind of right. went on to something else because um, the theologies diverged. But yeah, I think that there is still... I mean, it's, gosh, it's it's really hard, I think, to kind of get straight, like, the various threads of things that are going on. Because it's, on yeah, the one hand, yeah. you have people who deconstruct, um, who, who also follow this pattern that I was talking about of authenticity, where they're like, what I'm getting to is I'm peeling back the, um, the kind of harmful, uh, you know, the, the harm theology that I was fed as a kid. And so I'm deconstructing that to get to the core of like what real Christianity is. And of course, like that's like the antithesis of philosophical deconstruction because there is no core. It's just play (laughs) of language. Like there's no core to get to, right? It's just constant deferral of meaning. Um, Mm. But I think that that's, that's very hard to square with, historical Christianity, this idea of the constant deferral of meaning. I think it's yeah. possible, but for your average person, it's like, I mean, I found this yeah, out it's, it's very early on in my in my theology career when I was like trying to explain to like cousins and my parents and, you know, family like, oh, let me tell you about this guy, Jacques Derrida, and now like our faith is this constant <laughs> deferral and like how we don't ever settle yeah. on they're like wait what no i can't get right. behind that <laughs> what are you talking about um so so yeah so there's there's one kind of like deconstructionist right who is trying to find the core of christianity and then there's another who's like i have deconstructed my faith and found that there's nothing there there's it's it's emptiness and now i'm in atheist or an evangelical or something and i mean i don't want to be reductive i think in some ways those are two sides of the same coin in a way because they are both like after you know what derrida calls the center right the center of the structure the thing that you know the ideology the core like the existence of god or something that holds up everything else um you know when Derrida's point is that like no there, it, there's just a there's a piece missing like and it's it is this center and that's what enables the play of language and this constant deferral of meaning and so on but um yeah so and I think that so I think that the 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 quest for kind of more authentic authentic expression of faith is found in both the emerging church movement and the deconstruction movement I think that that's one way just kind of off the top of my head of how they are similar, how they go about that and what maybe what they find as the authentic expression of faith are perhaps different to a certain extent. Um, But it's that quest for authenticity that I think is still at, at bottom, right? The same, you know, I'm, I guess I'm still kind of waiting for something to kind of break through that, like where I can look at it and be like, wow, okay, this is, genuinely different um because in some ways 
both deconstruction and exvangelicals, like not that those are always distinct categories, but in many ways there it's a kind of just reimagining of evangelical culture to a certain extent. Um, there's still like the, because that, I mean, I think all of us who have been evangelical at some point, the thing we like about it or the thing that we're nostalgic for is community, right? It's the, yeah. um, it, it's the, uh, the sense that you belong somewhere and yeah, the exvangelical label deconstruction that, um, it sort of recreates that outside of evangelicalism, but there's still in some ways, I mean, at least from my observations, there still seems to be a kind of exclusivity <laughs> to those groups that, that seems like counterintuitive to me. Like shouldn't, if you're exvangelical, sh shouldn't that just be open to everybody? But there seems to be some right. gatekeeping sometimes. And I mean, that's exactly what evangelicals do. <laughs> they gatekeep right, who's a real evangelical and who's not. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it seems like a lot of the a lot of times ex-evangelicals kind of um, digest a lot of evangelical assumptions about what Christianity even is. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I see this a lot on Twitter, for instance, of, um, you know, seeing some someone who kind of identifies with like the deconstruction ex-evangelical kind of movement going back and forth with somebody who is maybe like from a Catholic tradition that's come mm -hmm. to like liberation theology, Guterres, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and their politics are, are pretty similar, but the uh, ex-evangelical will make a lot of assumptions about what this person believes because they kind of intuit that all Christianity is evangelicalism. Yes. yes when it's yes, a yes. really diverse tradition that's existed for right. 2000 years. <laughs> yeah. I, I encounter this a lot in my, in my college classes. Um, you know, I mean, from the very simple, uh, you know, a lot of students will make a distinction. They'll talk about Christians and then they'll talk about Catholics. And I'll be like, wait, hold on. <laughs> Catholics are Christians. And sometimes that's confusing to them. They're like, wait, no, what? I No, they're not. They're a different religion. I'm like, they are not a different religion. They are the same religion. They're diff two branches. You're talking about Protestants and Catholics, right? Um, but yeah, no, I totally, I totally see that. Um, uh, they're, they're, I mean... Yeah, there, there is a very strong sense, for sure, among American evangelicals that, like, their version of Christianity, even if they don't like that version of Christianity, that that's, that, that that's what it is, that that's what the majority of Christians around the world sort of think, and it's not the case. Yeah. Have you engaged with Tad DeLay's work oh, much? Oh, man. Tad, Tad is one of my best friends. Uh, yeah, Tad and I went to yeah we went to seminary together. Actually. Oh wow, we were at that's, yeah we, that's yeah crazy. we were at Fuller at the same time. Um, that's where we met. Gotcha. In his book against, he kind of argues that uh, evangelicalism is 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 guided by a sense of uh, election or like chosenness. Um, and the working thesis I kind of have is that the uh, the ex-evangelicals kind of still accept the premises of that belief. And so oftentimes when they're critiquing Christianity broadly, uh, or, or they'll frame their, their critiques of evangelicalism as Christianity broadly and ignore the kind of diversity of the tradition and whatever. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, there's a kind of... I mean, this is, it's interesting that you brought this up, like in my um, introduction to the study of religion courses, this 
semester, we've been looking at uh, the insurrection as mm -hmm. a kind of lens through which to understand how the academic study of religion works, right? And like what, yeah, what yeah. we do when we're a scholar of religion, that kind of thing. Um, and one of the things that we talked about, like we've read a lot of kind of history about um, uh, colonialism and, and I mean, there, it's not just evangelicals who have had this sense of, of chosenness. I mean, I do think that in the history of Christianity, there is a sense that like, um, you know, there, there's a great uh, book called Race and Secularism in America that has a lot of really, uh, I mean, they're dense, but really good chapters, you know, one by Willie Jennings, um, uh, Vincent Lloyd, some, you know, some pretty heavy hitters in like political theology, um, you know, black theology, that kind of thing. But the, the chapter by Willie Jennings is really interesting because he talks about this, um, uh, this Jesuit priest named Jose de Acosta, who's uh, you know, a pretty well-known figure in the history of colonialism and, um, you know, how de Acosta sort of explains the reason why the Spanish have to go to the, quote, new world to South America when the new world is like this, this, like, den of the devil. Like, it's this horrible, awful place to be. No one in their right mind would ever go there, but they've been chosen the white Europeans have been chosen to go there and the way God has enticed them is that he put a bunch of gold there. <laughs> so, so God is rewarding, right? That, you know, the, the materials to make money, which for De Acosta is like the basis of everything. Uh, it, God put that in the most undesirable location amongst the, the most reprehensible evil people so that, that land could be redeemed, right? So that those people could be redeemed. Like that's the logic. And so, um, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, I think that that there can be an issue with sort of generalizing and, and saying that like that sense of chosenness is exactly the same as the evangelical sense of chosenness. Um, but there there is a history, I mean, especially when it comes to race of this idea that, that uh, Christianity as sort of defined by whiteness is the chosen religion that they are the chosen people. And I mean, on January 6th, I think you have this same idea. Like I can throw fire extinguishers at people and beat people with flagpoles because like, ultimately I've been chosen by God to fight against the satanic cabal of the democratic party. So, you know, who wouldn't hit a demon with a flagpole? I mean, you know, and I, I do think that there's there has to be something to be said for for forms of liberation theology and um, you know you know James Cone's sense of chosenness right that you know the 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 idea that blackness is like aligned or that God is aligned with blackness like that's a very different <laughs> obviously sense of of chosenness and alignment with God than the sure, uh, evangelical yeah. version yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can take that, uh, what that chunk at the end of um, uh, Calvin's Institutes about God raising up agents to overthrow tyrants, and you can take that in reactionary to very, yep. you know, progressive directions, totally. depending totally. on who you're, who you are that's reading that. Yeah, um, absolutely. No, I, I was going to say, though, I, I think what I meant by the ex-evangelicals kind of projecting the is less projecting the chosenness, but to assume that the certain practices and theologies they grew up with are Christianity broadly. 
um, yeah. because they kind of see their you know version as the the archetype of what Christianity is. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's it's not that different from like um, people who sort of deconvert to atheism from like fundamentalist Christianity. I mean, I remember encountering that uh, quite a bit <laughs> yeah. in college and just being confused. Like, wait, you think that like all religious people read the Book of Genesis like literally? Literally, like I yeah. have never mm-hmm. read the book of Genesis literally like that is totally foreign to me as a Christian. I don't know what you're talking about. And then they're like really insistent, like, no, the Bible thinks it's a science textbook. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't. It, that's yeah, a, like you're, a very you're... modern projection of, you know, or understanding interpretation of what the Bible yeah. is that doesn't really uh, correlate at all to the ancient mm-hmm. understanding, you know. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I, I've seen this go as far as like, you know, not, not to just be rehashing things that annoyed me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, like, I, you know, I've seen this go as far as like, um, you know, uh, people talking to like African Christians, like in, in Africa and telling them, oh, you've interpreted colonial theologies of like, buddy, I think they have a better <laughs> yeah. understanding of that than, you know, white guy with a <laughs> yeah. MDiv. Right. Oh, oh man. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, th- trying to think how to pull this back to music since sure. I guess that is <laughs> yeah, no the topic here. <laughs> music scene is in Christianity is really kind of tied up to like public theological figures I kind of feel like in some way for at least my experience I remember like podcasts I listened to at some point like you know at, at one point in my life listening a lot to uh, Emory, the, the Emory Guys podcast Bad Christian, Bad Christian yeah, was yeah. my then introduction to Peter Enns and a lot of okay. more like public figures who are right. writing about this stuff so it is kind of tied that like even though it feels unrelated, the the theology has this relationship to culture, like you you've been kind of saying, you yeah. Know? And especially among the evangelical world, um, you, you mentioned the 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 kind of leftism being more in that quietist, separatist kind of approach. Do you think that I, I don't know? I guess counterfactuals aren't the best way to do this, but do you think that Cornerstone or Tooth and Nail, like those kind of bands? could have moved in a liberation theology route or do you think they were kind of destined by the way they approach this stuff to kind of always go toward this like cynical anarchism kind of thing they were doing (laughs) gosh um i mean it's really hard to say i mean on the one hand so i mean one of the reasons why especially early on a lot of these bands just kind of went the tooth and nail route was because it was so easy to get shows, right? There was this huge vacuum um, of like, there's, here's this gigantic demographic that is like so hungry for some kind of music that they can like convince their parents is okay. Right. And like, if you're 1920 and you want to be an abandoned tour and not have to compete, you know, against, like, uh, you know, hot water music and, you know, all these other like really huge, you know, mid nineties, uh, like hardcore and, and emo and punk acts. Right. Right. Then like, yeah, there, here are a thousand venues across the country at, you know, churches that Mm -hmm. have, you know, a hundred people 
ready and willing to listen to you, I mean, it's like a perfect match, right? Because you essentially have a guaranteed crowd everywhere you go. You're definitely not going to have that if you're just playing traditional venues, trying to make it on your own. I mean, I did that in a band in 2003. It was rough. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, it was really hard to uh, uh, to to make it work. And like, I think one of our best shows actually was we did like an acoustic set at a church camp, like in Nevada somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah. And even though we weren't really like an explicitly Christian band, like one of our guitarists was like, hey, I have this hookup like we can we just can't be too loud, but we could do an acoustic set. And like it worked out really well. We sold a ton of merch, a ton of like more than any other date on the tour. Um, and so yeah, I totally get it that like there's this, there was this need, and and these guys. But the so all that's a long way of saying the flip side of that was now you are sort of hemmed in a little bit by the expectations of Christian culture, and that was a constant. Uh, uh, push and pull that was a constant tension for tooth and nail where you had on the one hand brandon who was very much like the only way for us to be successful is if we are sold in lifeway and other christian bookstores they are the gatekeepers we have to convince them that our music is safe right even though we're outside of ccm um and they were able to do that for the most part uh you know and then you have uh like billy power who's like can we just forget about trying to, can we just make it on our own as an independent label and just, let's just be an independent label um, and get sold in indie record stores like everybody else. Uh, and then we can just do whatever we want. And who cares what the executives at Lifeway think about our lyrics and whether or not they can be interpreted as being about Jesus. I mean, that's like a pretty wild thing about Tooth and Nail that I don't think a ton of people know is that, they did a lot of like um, lyric, not coaching, but uh, I mean, I interviewed Aaron Sprinkle, who's uh, you know big time producer uh, for Tooth and Nail artists, like produced the first couple Anne Berlin records, like you know did some major records for Tooth and Nail, and was in Tooth and Nail bands himself. But um, I mean, he <laughs> he said that you know he definitely remembers. Uh, working with bands on like trying to inter essentially interpret their own songs to be about Jesus, right? So that they could make the <laughs> argument that this is actually about Jesus. And I also interviewed John Dunn, who's the bassist of uh, Demon Hunter, who was also the head of A&R at Tooth and Nail uh, for uh, about 10 years, like 2003 to 2013. And yeah, he remembers like, you know, why, you know, going up like to to bands like when they're visiting the offices or whatever and being like, hey, what's this? Do you remember what this song is about? And they'd be like, oh, it's about my high school girlfriend. And he'd be like, well, is it possible it that it could be about Jesus? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I mean, really, that, I they had to write letters to the Christian bookstore executives, like when a new album was coming out, if there was anything that was going to be even remotely questionable at all, they had to wow. explain themselves huh. so that, and the thing is that like, I mean, when you think about it, a lot of stuff slipped through. I mean, think about like five iron frenzies records and like their lyrics. I mean, 
on their very first record, they the the you know they have songs about like um, like Native American genocide and <laughs> you know yeah um, yeah they were I, I joke that they're the band that radicalized me and it's only half a joke right I mean they you go back and they had like very left leaning politics that were pretty explicit and yet they were still sold in in bookstores and I mean there's a simple explanation for that it's money. Um, you know, but, but, but there was still, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost like, um, it's almost like a parody of, of evangelicalism to say this in a way, but like, they were much more concerned with like, what was on the album cover. Like, was it something that was going to be too, look too evil or too demonic potentially, or, uh, you know, was there anything that could be construed as nudity or sexual in any way? Um, like that was really a, a bigger concern to them, to them in a lot of ways than what the actual content of the lyrics were, even though they did want an explanation of. Um, so so because sorry, I feel like I'm like getting off track with some of this stuff to, to answer your question. I think that that's a, uh, in some ways a big reason. Like I think some of the bands felt hemmed in. A little bit but but you still have um you know like mark solomon for instance of stavesaker uh and before that the crucified like one of the first like hardcore christian punk bands ever um you know he's very much a leftist and a socialist and um i think has been for a very long time and um his uh kind of autobiography simplicity about his time sort of wrestling through and with the Christian music industry is very eye-opening. I mean, it's, um, it's re it's a really interesting read if anyone's never read it before. I mean, it came out in like 2005, it's pretty old now, but, um, but I think it, it gives a very, uh, interesting and, and from my like interviews, like super accurate, like window into what it was like to be in one of these bands and be dealing with, kind of the politics of evangelicalism um, and and like evangelical culture and kind of navigating that. So I think that that's part of it. I mean, at the same time, you still had bands like Slick Shoes and Dogwood and the Juliana Theory, uh, you know, putting anti-abortion songs on their records. Um, you know, so it's not like they're, it's not like they're, these records were like devoid of any kind of right-wing politics at all. I mean, it was definitely there. Um, uh, that, I mean, that's the other thing that kind of makes this scene like sort of hard to put your finger on like exactly what's happening politically. Um, yeah. Know, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I was interested by that, that like, um, you guys talk about in, um, in your podcast, the, uh, the trope of the, is this song about God or a girlfriend, uh, kind of thing. I, I didn't <laughs> right. realize, I didn't realize that that was, um, like a structural thing i guess i just kind of thought that was a coincidence of like writing i didn't realize that you know tooth and nail was actually looking over your shoulder and making sure like yeah <laughs> it could be interpreted either yeah way. and i mean they, it's uh, not it's not because it's not because tooth and nail execs like actually cared about the, like they didn't care it was they knew that I mean, that it was just that was the business model that brandon ebel like thought was going to be the most successful he thought if we're going to make this work like we have to be in christian bookstores um right yeah 
And it's, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to know if, like, they would have made it anyway. Uh, I mean, yeah. I like to think that, that maybe they would, because I, I feel like um, a lot of the bands that, there are a lot of bands that Tooth & Nail put out that were, I mean, Me Without You is sort of like a prime example, that were, like, very innovative, ahead of their time, very original, um, you know, uh they didn't. They really didn't put out that much that that felt derivative. I mean, especially when you get to the late '90s and early 2000s. Like then they started paving the way. And certainly when you talk about metalcore, I mean, Christian metalcore is like the paradigm of metalcore. Like it it worked the opposite way, where like it was the mainstream bands that started copying Under Oath and uh, you know Norma Jean and the Chariot and that kind of thing. Um, you know, not you. You did have some. There were some like quote unquote secular metalcore bands like Botch and and that kind of thing like before those. But those were the bands that that hit the mainstream that defined the sound of metalcore. It was all Christian metalcore bands, and that was Solid State. That was Tooth and Nail's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned like uh you know the case of like anti-abortion songs and then on the flip side like five iron frenzy talking about like native american genocide or whatever um did you see a trend in like what kinds of issues the evangelical musical artists would be more likely to pivot left on i mean i think that you do so the bands that come to mind kind of off the top of my head are like uh early squad five oh uh you mm -hmm. definitely see some um you know they're they have a song that's like basically like i hate my state flag because the confederate flag is like part of it and like why is that yeah, the yeah. case and what you know so you do okay, see yeah, yeah. So you do see some stuff like that you see some uh like questioning of the government uh in a kind of like traditional punk way um uh, the you know the band uh dead poetic uh they're the first track oh, yeah. on uh on new medicines taste the red hands like that mm -hmm. um you know that has the in the chorus like this thing about like uh i take it to be about like corporate greed and yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's not uh, i mean to call that <laughs> leftist is probably a bit of a stretch um yeah. But there is something about it that's at least like touching on that question, mm -hmm. that, you know, that problem um, to uh, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, again, it's hard. Like you don't you don't really have the kind of explicit like leftist sort of um themes that you see in the uh like 80s hardcore punk scene where they're like railing right. against like neocons and ronald reagan and that kind of where it's no, like extremely not, like no. what's interesting is that like um so slick shoes on their first on rusty on their first record they have a song that is in the style of like seven seconds it's like uh uh, very much like an old school, like eighties, like hardcore song. Um, sure, yeah. and it, it is railing against the government, but the, but the thing it's railing against the government for is like Roe v. Wade. <laughs> it's like, it's like an anti-government song, but like from this like conservative perspective, it's totally 
like bonkers. Like when you think about it and like put it in context, I mean, I think my book might have like That's a whole so chapter bizarre. just about that song. <laughs> um, That's so I, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's really, I think when I was, when I was like, you know, 14, 15, when I was super into that record, I think that I thought initially that that song was a kind of like more anarchic leftist anti-government song. I didn't realize until later, like till maybe in my twenties, <laughs> like when I actually paid attention to the lyrics, I was like, Oh, Oh no, wait, no, he's talking about like the life of the unborn. Like, okay, this is not what I thought it was Very at different. all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, something that we talk about on, uh, on the us without them podcast, uh, kind of early on is, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of 18 and 19 year olds, mm. especially at the end of the 90s, you know, which was a very economically prosperous decade. I think Stephen makes this point. Um, you know, they were not really that concerned, honestly, with uh, actual political action. Like they didn't have to yeah. be to a certain extent. Um, and right. so you have this like very strong focus on like love and girls. And I mean, that's true of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the secular scene as well. Um, oh, you, know, yeah. you have this explosion of bands like the get up kids and saves the day. And, you know, I think the only band mm -hmm. at that time that I can think of that was like explicitly, I'm, I'm sure there were more, but like the band Thursday, um, they mm -hmm. had a, so yeah, they have yeah. a song about, um, like the like about colonialism and murdering uh indigenous peoples um uh uh that is uh it's a very good song um <laughs> uh but uh other than that like everybody all the other emo like post-hardcore bands are also just singing about girls and you know broken hearts yeah. and that kind of thing you don't really have the same political um, like fervor that you see in the decade prior, right in the eighties. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think the same is true about tooth and nail bands. Um, so yeah, so you have a little bit of it breaking through, but I think that, you know, a lot of people that I talked to, like the primary thing that, that this music did for their politics was it opened them to the fact that there are other ways to be Christian, Right. Um, and so at the very least, it opened them to this idea that like, oh, hey, I don't actually have to, um, uh, you know, have like super conservative politics and be a Christian, just like I don't have to love DC Talk and Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith in order to be a Christian. I don't have to listen to Carmen yeah. CDs. I can listen to <laughs> MXPX um, right. and, you know, stuff that actually like sounds good um oh one band just there there are two bands that kind of that came to mind that were very early um the band head noise which was uh like a more hardcore punk uh female fronted christian punk band uh and the band crash dog um which are two bands that like probably most people who are just casual tooth and nail fans have never heard of um, but they're worth checking out. Uh, Crash Dog in particular is like from the very beginning, we're combining socialism and Christianity in their oh, lyrics. Cool. And we're talking like 1989, 1990, like that early. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Pre-dating pre Tooth and Nail. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And do you think that that kind of sentiment changed with like 9-11? Because I mean, you talk about this a bit in the Us Without Them. Um, sorry, going back to the, yeah, the yeah. kind of more individualist focus, because I mean, 9-11 opened up the door to, you know, now we have a war going on. It's no longer the end of history, right? We're back in, right. you know, stuff's happening. Right. Um, although I, I can't think of a ton of like anti-war records coming out of no. Tooth and Nail. Um, so I, I no. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't have like, uh, you know, the, the kind of classic kind of under kind of generically punk underground example I can think of is no is the war on errorism, which was like mm-hmm. explicitly yeah. anti the war in Iraq anti. I mean, I think on the cover is like a cartoon clown pick version of George W. Bush. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 you don't see anything <laughs> like that in the tooth no, and nail no. universe. And I do think that part of it is, um, you know, the kind of the, the age that, that people were, um, you know, they perhaps just, you know, I mean, I think this is, uh, certainly like the, this is a generational thing. I think, you know, the, the current, uh, young generation Gen Z is much more politically conscious than, uh, than millennials were. I mean, I, you know, I thought that I was when I was like 18, 19, I think I like became a libertarian for like a year because I thought that that was like, <laughs> and part of it was this like, well, I'm not going to be a Republican or a Democrat. Like part of yeah. it was this kind of like, that yeah. was my way of being anti-establishment What and punk was to like be a libertarian. Like little did I know that like <laughs> the politics were terrible, you know, but it was again, also that like evangelical individualist impulse too. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I do think 9-11 changed things uh, to a certain extent. I don't think, I think it's harder to hear it in the music. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that in terms of how people sort of used the music and kind of the ethos of the music to kind of inform their politics, I do think that you see a greater shift in some ways, either toward leftism or toward a kind of doubling down on the, well, I'm not going to engage in these partisan debates about the war. Um, yeah. You know, because yeah. Cause Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat. So I'm going to just stay out of it. Like that's my, that's how I express being authentic. Like, you know, it, and I think that there's, yeah, there's a very uh, real parallel with the whole, the sentiment that like, Christian underground music is too Christian for the punks, too punk for the Christians. I'm going to be a Christian yeah. that's like too conservative for the leftists and too liberal for the conservatives. And that's how I know that I'm being an authentic mm-hmm. person and I'm not being, you know, I'm not yeah, a I'm follower. Not, I'm not who's buying like, into, yeah, yeah, exactly. When, when <laughs> actually like that's, it's not a radical position at all. No, not at all. It's well, because you could see a thousand people talking about depolarizing like at the same time in in secular popular culture at the time as well. Yes. Like shaking hands with somebody across the aisle. Like it was it was it was a sentiment that's been floating around in, you know, liberal democracies forever. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And but I think that I think that in some ways, like this kind of subculture of evangelicalism, like just made it so easy for people to, mm-hmm. to be like, yes, this is the identity that I want to take on for myself, is this depolarized. Yeah.
authentic self. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's kind of interesting. Um, the the politics around authenticity that you're kind of coming back to as the theme. Um, yeah, because it it's kind of a real blank slate. It feels like authenticity could could be a very reactionary thing or a very uh, you know progressive thing, kind of depending on right who's in it. Yeah, um, I, I guess. Do you, do you see that? That authenticity emphasis, is that a more of a millennial thing to you? Or do you see that kind of moving on into Gen Z as well? Gosh. Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I I mean, I think that, man, I, man, that's hard to answer. Um, I, I do, I mean, I do think that it's a big, it's certainly a big piece of like the kind of collective millennial uh yeah. <laughs> psyche if you will uh in a way um i yeah it's hard to put my finger on uh you know even though i you know the majority of students that i teach you know day in and day out yeah, are gen absolutely. z um yeah there's I, I don't know i think that there's uh there is a kind of tendency toward authenticity in a way i think that it's it's in some ways it's couched more as like transparency. Like, um, so for example, in, in my, uh, I'm teaching, uh, in English, like, uh, argumentative writing class this semester. Um, and so we've been like talking about various like controversial issues. And, and last week we were talking about the idea of, of canceling somebody and, um, oh, yeah, yeah. we, sure. as kind of a, a, a thing to talk about in relation to that, we talked about the issue of, uh, Apu from the Simpsons. Right. And like five years ago, there was this documentary that came out that was, you know, produced by uh, an Indian, you know, comedian who was talking about like the damage that Apu being voiced by a white man, like essentially doing like a character. Anyway, the Gen Z students were sort of like, um, I don't know why people are upset about like, why is there a controversy about this? Not that like Apu is fine, leave Apu alone, but like, why would anybody be upset about questioning this caricature? <laughs> like, it's obviously a problem, and we obviously have to talk about it. Why is this controversial uh -huh. at all to raise this question? Like, for them, it's just it very it's about transparency. Yeah. Like, you just... I mean, they recognize, obviously, that there is racism and that, you know, uh, especially among older generations, there's... Um, there's a fear of being canceled. There's a, a reticence in some ways to be open and, and talk about. But for them, you just talk about it. Like you hash it out. You work out your stuff. You um, like there's there's no reason why this should be a controversy. Yeah. Or why there yeah. should be any kind of like reverse cancellation of this comedian or anything like that. Like they were very much like I don't really understand like the two positions here. This is obviously racist and yeah. end of story. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right, right. there's there's that uh, that's kind of been my experience is that there's this level of like authenticity. Yes. But in framed as like you just be transparent and 
um, like honest in a way uh, about yeah. about these things, and and it's not really a um, it's not a persona. It's not a, a a a thing that you put on. It's not a thing that you that you even really cultivate. It just kind of I think comes intuitively to them on some yeah, level. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's going to be something kind of interesting to watch as it plays out. Um, because, you know, Gen-, Gen Z's kind of odd. Um, I say this as having kind of a foot in it, um, being younger. Um, like, uh, on the one hand, yeah, you have this, like, this awareness of, of issues and, and, and honesty, like ability to just question structures and not be as worried about doing that. About um, rocking the boat in some way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because if it, you know, if it exists, it should be questioned to some extent, right? Yeah. But you also see, like, um, you know, we, we often forget, uh, you know, there's there's kind of like a, a narrative that that kind of sees like, oh, Gen Z, they're going to be the, the cool woke, they're going to save us, right? But mm-hmm. then on the flip side, you have like the alt-right is also a lot of yes. Gen Zers. Yeah. And... You see the rise of like increasingly fringe positions where you can run into a 17 year old on Twitter who had a Nazi phase and now they're a Stalinist. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, how did that happen? That's, like... that's true. That is, yeah, that is kind of wild. Um, yeah. And I have no, like some of the, some of the Facebook groups that I'm part of, like, I mean, it's amazing to me that there are Gen Zers yeah. like on Facebook at all. Um, but like. <laughs> I'm in a couple like music, like meme groups, and sometimes like the jokes. Yeah, there, there's like this 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 style of humor among Gen Zers where it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna say something or post something like very controversial with a straight face and just not like let down the facade <laughs> and just keep it going. And like then other people like are are sort of like doing the same thing too but like in this reactionary way and it's like this whole sort of like performative comedy piece yes and me as like an old millennial like i'm basic i'm like a couple years removed from gen x like that's how old i am uh and i'm i'm looking at this like what is happening here (laughs) like i think this is supposed to be funny like God, am I that old now? Where like I just really cannot wrap my head You're around just the, like yeah. young people humor. <laughs> when did that happen? Oh my God! But yeah, no, I can I can definitely see how like that could very easily give way to uh, Gen Zers just like oh I'm gonna make some Nazi jokes and like just see who I can trick essentially into thinking that this is. Uh, you know, genuine, and then, oop, uh-oh, it is genuine now for me. Like, I am a Nazi, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that is worrying for sure. Yeah, I, it, I, it I, is. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely get that. Um, I have to say, it, it does, it is a sore spot for me when a Gen Zer is like, God, millennials complain so much. I'm like, dude, we've lived, we had to go through a recession, <laughs> Like, I was 25, like, when the recession started. Like, come yeah, on. absolutely. Give me a break. Yeah. People, yeah. like, boomers still think that, like, I'm you, essentially. Like, they call you a millennial when you're not. Like, they think that I'm still, like, 18, even though I'm going to turn 40 this year. Like, they, there are boomers that still... I'm, right, the, yo- right. I'm the youngest 
person, uh, faculty member at my college. And uh, I, I love I love all my faculty at my school, but sometimes yeah. I get talked to like I'm like millennials are still like college undergrads. I'm like, yo, yeah, I'm no, they're not. I'm 40 and have a kid and have been married for 10 years. Like, yeah. I'm not 18. Yeah. <laughs> you can talk to me like an adult. <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely um well i suppose we should probably move toward wrapping up here um this has been this has been great there's been a lot here um i guess do you want to quickly plug anything like where people could follow you on twitter or yeah sure so i'm on twitter at prof j harrison um mm-hmm. also you know of course us without them is uh you know us without them pod.com uh and we're on all social media platforms we have a uh a closed or well not closed but private uh a podcast group where we have discussion we're, we're hoping that that can trying to figure out how to pick that make that uh, a little more lively but you know um but yeah no we we uh it's been really fun to do that um I also, I'll just mention, I have a Instagram account for my vinyl record collection um, that is really fun. That's that's where I spend a lot of my uh, social media time is is on that posting posting about my uh, my record collection, um, and that is uh, at Underground Vinyl spelled U N D R G R N D underscore vinyl so underground without any vowels underscore vinyl um and uh yeah so that's uh that's where you can find me and hopefully the book will be uh i'm hoping to to be able to make a huge amount of headway on it um during summer break and and hopefully it'll be out in the next year 18 months or something like that absolutely yeah well i'm excited to read it when it uh when it arrives Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. Um, have a good day.